lights of their own electric torches glimmered on the leather coats of the police, for all the lights had gone out, though terrified monkeys, their fur ablaze, flashed past like meteors. The candles they had dropped rolled underfoot, and here and there the hangings were already on fire. The Count picked up a fallen candle and lighted whatever curtains we passed with such rapidity it seemed the fire sprang from his fingers rather than from the flame. The porteress led us this way and that, threading us like a cunning needle through narrow, unused corridors, up unexpected spiral staircases, through echoing galleries full of instruments of torture and the apparatus of fetishism. We could hear the oceanic roaring of the lions, for the furniture was running loose. Once we pushed past a lumbering chair, a howling pack of tables fled away from us down a hall of dark mirrors as we ourselves ran through, just in time or as we pushed past the bead curtain hanging over the outer doorway, bullets shivering the mirrors back to chips of unreflecting silvered glass. Albertina must somehow have let all the prostitutes out of their cages, were freed from the petrification of their profession. Once they were free of bars, the prostitutes, too, were trying to escape the police, who were the sworn enemies of objects so candidly unreal. We often glimpsed a leafed or feathered shape transfixed in the beam of a torch upon the staircase. It would let out a shuddering cry before disintegrating in the impact of an authentic bullet or would collapse in the whispering rustle of waste paper where the bullets cracked open the carapace and all the springs and wheels sprang whizzing out. Monkeys on fire, caged prostitutes, living furniture running, running amok, reality bullets piercing, illusory images... This is the world of Angela Carter. And who could we have walk us through the world of Angela Carter than Melanie Daniels? And I'm jumping right into the introducing of you, Melanie, because I just listened to our last podcast where we had you on as a guest. And we took like 10 goddamn minutes to introduce you. It was so embarrassing. Let's get that out of the way right away. How are you today? I'm well. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. Melanie, of course, is the producer and co-writer of Cinema Parlor. We've had her on to talk about romance novels in the past. Uh, we've had her on for a Fire from the Fire episode. We always love having her. Thank you so much for coming back and talking to us again. Thank you for inviting me back. And we've got the Pink Smoke's own zodiacal salamander man, Mr. Martin Kessler, joining us. How are you doing, Martin? Stop looking at me, swan. <laughs> and the book we're talking about today is The Infernal Desire Machines of Dr. Hoffman, released in 1972 and then published in the United States as The War of Dreams by Angela Carter. Angela Carter is a big topic. She is a, a, I'm a huge, huge fan of her work. It's such a huge thing to kind of get into. I'm kind of curious how this episode kind of plays out because it could kind of divide, you know, devolve into chaos. But as Melanie's already pointed out to us off camera, that's, you know, be appropriate for this particular book. Uh, Angela Carter, a South London writer, half Scottish, kind of got started doing kind of more straightforward sort of romance type novels and then kind of moved into genre fiction but is very indefinable i think in genre fiction you know she has been kind of claimed by the fantasy community the sci-fi community the horror community she's kind of all over the place and i think that really speaks to how truly unique she is as an artist uh she's probably most famous for her story compilation the bloody chamber from 1979 in which she retold adult fairy tales but with the latent content from those stories kind of brought to the forefront that she had ended up adapting into the movie, The Company of Wolves, directed by Michael Jordan. Uh, Michael Jordan. Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't dumb. believe it was Michael Jordan. <laughs> you guys got to correct me when I, <laughs> no, I make a mistake. Picturing the, what the behind the scenes would be like. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I took it personally. I'd like to think Michael Jordan, after a good game, you know, 
chills at his place reading Angela Carter. That's a that's a nice thought. It's directed. It was directed by Neil Jordan. Uh, but let me ask you guys, just as a way to kind of get things started, we'll start with Melanie. What's your kind of experience reading Angela Carter? Have you been a fan for a while? Yeah, I'm a massive fan. She's one of my favorite writers. And I say that, that the way she uses language to describe things is intoxicating to me. I think she's so, and I think I probably said this on uh, the last time I was on, whenever we were talking about Neil Jordan and we were talking about Company of Wolves, where there's just something with her stories that it's, she creates a magic that you can feel. And she's one of the few people when I read, I'm really transported and I can fully build what she's describing in my mind. Like similar to Tolkien, Swift or Wild, but it's completely unique to the story she chooses to tell. Like a lot of it is taboo and there's a lot of feminist themes, but yeah, I'm, I'm a massive fan of her and the, I think the first thing I read, it was her short stories. And I don't know if it was Bloody Chamber or Burning Your Boats, but I started with her short stories. And that's definitely to people coming on who haven't read her before. I would recommend starting there. I wouldn't recommend Dr. Hoffman as a starting point just because it is it's a lot. And you're going to be immediately confronted with a lot of topics she covers quite often. And some of them are controversial. So but I I think she's incredible. I love her. I'm really excited that you asked me to come on for this because I've just been waiting to talk about her. And I'm glad you said this is not a good place for neophytes to start with Angela Carter. Definitely Burning Your Boats is like a great primer. It collects all of her short story collections, Fireworks, Black Venus, and Bloody Chamber. I believe all those stories are in there because her short fiction is so beautiful. But what you say about her writing too is it's funny to read people talk about Carter because they will either be positive or negative about that kind of writing i feel you know that just exactly what you said where you're just completely entranced by this she just kind of takes you on this this into this weird world this angela carter world and like relentlessly doesn't let you go but and i think some people find that to be tedious yes exactly yeah. a lot of words it's wordy if you don't like people i mean she uses language and extensively one of the things martin and i mentioned when we were just kind of discussing this uh together was that usually when you're reading an Angela Carter short story, you want to have like a notepad next to you, like, oh, look up this word later. <laughs> it <laughs> is like that, back to that. Yeah. yeah. She is, I mean, she's been accused of overriding for that reason, but that's that's part of like what makes her amazing is that you really are forced into this world. I mean, you can't get out of it. You know, she won't, she won't let you out of a paragraph like the one I just read, you know, where it's just like, and that one is much more action-oriented, I think, than a lot of the paragraphs in this book. She still like just throws words out at you and, and events out at you, and they're happening all so quickly that, you know, it's like being drunk on words in a way. So I totally agree with that. Martin, what is your experience with Angela Carter? Uh, I'm not exactly new to Angela Carter, but I've hardly read anything of hers. Um, I read The Passion of Duweave when I was in university. I think what happened was for Christmas break, I was going to take the bus home to see my parents. Our university had this bookstore where they had like all the books that you would buy for your classes. And I just looked in through there like, oh, I'm going to find a book to read on the bus. And over the break, I picked it up just because I thought it looked kind of interesting. And I'm sorry to, you know, the poor gender studies student who had to go out and find a copy someplace else. But it took me longer to read than a than a bus ride. 
every other page or every page or sometimes every paragraph, there was a word where it was like, I swear to God, I've never seen that word before in my life. <laughs> but um, I loved it. And really, like to this day, I, I think it's one of the best books I've read. And it was never, I think there were some authors where if if the language was that overbearing, I would feel like it was them jerking me around or it would be them showing off or something like that. And it really didn't feel that way with the passion of new eve and it was strange and kind of funny and sexy and dark and sort of like um you know one of my favorite movies is the film version of orlando it was a little bit like that but with post-apocalyptic elements worked in and just unlike anything else i'd read uh, before or since and uh i i never got back to angela carter after that i probably should have i, I think it was just one of those things that i never quite got around to i never delved further into that world, which, you know, it's exciting to know that there is a world of Angela Carter books out there. I read it almost like a one-off. So this was only the second time I'd read something of hers. I don't really know much about her biography. I think it only really clicked that, oh, it was her who wrote Company of Wolves when I listened to the podcast. So I'm kind of new, but I'm also kind of not new. So yeah, I think we, we, we mentioned when we were talking together that this one does not have a lot of five cent words that you have to like, look up some I of the know. I, stories. <laughs> for, for a moment, I was like, Oh, maybe my vocabulary is improved. But I, <laughs> I think you're right. I think it's not as esoteric with the language. It's it's a little bit more accessible. And I like that upfront, it sort of tells you like, hey, this is going to be a pick a risk adventure you know it's it's almost like a disclaimer in the text that like don't, don't worry we're gonna have some fun with this there only ended up being three words that i wrote down throughout the this book <laughs> that i was like never heard of them before i got concanation which means a series of interconnected themes or events that's kind of a cool word a solenanity which just means timid basically timidity and then uh steatogamous which is just means you got a big booty that's all that means <laughs> These are all very good words to know. Yeah. I, <laughs> and, and to learn how to pronounce correctly, which I'm going to have to do after we finish talking. But I mean, other than the big words, I mean, obviously there are big themes here. There's a lot of stuff to, you know, kind of appreciate about that. She has a very refreshing kind of version of feminism where it's not the kind of earth mother power sort of, you know, thing. It's more of, you know, women treated as real people and having real desires the way that men do. She wrote a fantastic book about the sod, the, the Sadian women, a woman that really kind of dissects his work as being more uh, female positive than many people would think it would be. It's a really interesting book to read if you haven't before. And this book is, you know, one that's going to make you squirm for sure. You know, there's a lot of lot of stuff going on in this book that's going to make you uncomfortable but i think it's all interesting to like the themes that she's talking about and as you said she's kind of right up front with like this is what i'm doing it's going to be something very literary and something very thematic she seems to be completely in control of what she wants to do and i think that that really helps make this a very cohesive narrative at the end of the day but you know we'll get into it let's start with our aperitif pairings I'm really curious to hear what you guys came up with because this is an this is an interesting one to like think of what is this like? And again, Angela Carter is so unlike anything else. Again, she's a lot of people want to put her with the uh, the Ursula Le Guin's or the uh, Octavia Butler's, the um, Vonda McIntyre's, the kind of female science fiction writers. But she's definitely more of the kind of new wave of British science fiction writers of the 70s, the J.G. Ballards, the Michael Moorcocks, those guys, uh, the Brian Aldises, but she's really not like those guys at all either. She's really her own country. 
So it's going to be interesting to hear. We're going to start with Melanie and let us know what would be a good thing to check out before reading The Infernal Desire Machines of Dr. Hoffman. Well, since this is surrealism in written form, I went with a very literal interpretation of that. And I just picked a surrealist artist. So I picked a painting by Euronymous Bosch and it's probably his most well-known. It's a very famous painting. It's probably something that most people have seen, even if they don't know what it's called or who has painted it. So what it is, is a, it's actually a triptych and these are panel paintings and they're kind of fashioned with hinges. So they open like a cabinet. You can close them. You'll see one image. You open them to see uh, one big picture or three other images. So this is the Garden of Earthly Delights. And um, Hieronymus was a, a Renaissance painter. He was from the Netherlands. He was in a very conservative place. So if you look at this painting, it's when closed, it's very conservative and understated. It's monochromatic, uh, black and white, and it shows the, it's the creation. I think it's on the third day. And whenever it's opened, you see this, it's just an explosion of color and imagery. And it's something that if you, I, I will describe it as simply as possible, but if you were to look at it, you, you could spend days just studying this painting and people have, but on, so whenever you open it on the left-hand panel, you have a picture of the garden of Eden and it's very tranquil and serene and pretty. And then you move into the center the main panel, which is a little bit bigger than the other two. And it's kind of the fallout of people following their desires and succumbing to lust and sin. And there's a lot of eroticism. There's a lot of uh, big soft fruits. There's a lot of different architectural structures. And uh, it's there's just a lot going on. And then whenever you move to the final, the right-hand panel, it's a hellscape, which shows... Uh, pretty horrific images, any nudity that was there, it's no longer erotic. It's very off-putting and creepy. There's a burning cityscape in the background that you can see. It's just a world on fire. And so the reason why I think that beyond it being surrealism, I think if you look at this kind of how the journey of going to the castle and the story we're going to be talking about, it starts off and it's kind of, it's, you know, peacock tales and it's funny kind of, and it's like, oh, okay, this is bizarre. These hallucinations are kind of pouring out into the streets. And then we move into like sexual desires and things of that nature. And then the closer you get to the castle, the more disturbing imagery kind of that's displayed and the more uh, vicious the unreality becomes. And I think that's true to looking at Basha's painting because it moves through. It's a very pleasant journey and then you're just kind of thrown into the bowels of hell it's like a where's waldo of the grotesque it's it great. is yeah. it's oh, it's such a cool it is a really cool painting i know it's i feel like a little not pretentious but I, it's like i picked something that's super famous but i just this is the type of these are the type of images that i think of whenever i was reading at least this time rereading you know her words and kind of what she's describing these undescribable images you know and it's, I was like, this is like a Bosch painting. That's a perfect pick. When you when you mentioned you were going to pick a painting, I thought, oh, I wonder if it's going to be Bosch. I immediately thought that's, yeah, the, that's exactly. the mind frame I'm in when I'm reading this. Absolutely. So mm -hmm. it's funny. I, I did a, I wrote about uh, the mechanic, the Michael Winter movie where Charles Bronson's assassin has uh, the triptych kind of up on his wall and kind of is always looking at it. And I just kind of thought, it's nice to be able to kind of compare Angela Carter with Michael Winner. Probably <laughs> diametrically couldn't get more opposite between two artists. Although 
they do have kind of interesting interconnectedness and sort of like their interest in fairy tales and things I was like gonna say, that. There's some themes. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. And they both have kind of connections to Captain Bray. And, and let me just say, I don't know if this is connected, but I was just thinking when I had that thought, I thought, oh, there's like all these Brea things that are making that I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about these two artists. When is she going to make a new movie? And literally today, people were tweeting about stills from her new film that's coming out at her first oh. in 10 years. And it was like, well, I'm, I'm, I hope my desire for that movie made me brought it into reality, just like manifested the characters it. Yeah. in this book manifested into being. I like to think that that's true. <laughs> uh, great pick. I think, you know, just thematically and also just texturally like i had that sort of same feeling reading it so absolutely martin what is your pick for aperitif i came at this almost from a science fiction angle and i had a really hard time picking because there are quite a few stories about you know some science fiction force bringing our fantasies to reality but like the tone is so different from a lot of those you know it's not like use face nine where rumpelstiltskin comes to life uh but the, the one i settled on was satoshi Kon's paprika and I was thinking about that like idea of the assault on reality. And there's that procession that just kind of keeps growing and growing and it becomes a little bit more and more horrific. Um, and just, yeah, that that tone where it kind of can go from playful to threatening. And uh, I don't know, like I, I always try to picture books, how they should maybe be adapted into films or could they be adapted into films and I almost feel like I think I said something similar on Galactic Pop Healer I, I could see this being more like a Japanese anime than a live action feature film because some of the imagery is so out there and the tone of it I, I think it's the kind of thing that might I, I thought Paprika might be a good primer if you're going to read this book but who but Khan could make that movie you know like who would have <laughs> that kind of vision to to take this book and adapt it into an animated film. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that there are a lot of, I, I don't know. I mean, he's, go, he's gone now. So, but uh, right. yeah, that's a great pick. Um, I was originally going to, my I thought was I'm going to pick something that clearly influenced this book as the pair teeth and something that it clearly influenced in turn as the dessert. I immediately in the beginning of the book came up with, Oh, these are two very clear things that he, uh, that, that Angela Carter is uh, referencing and is clearly a fan of. But then I thought, uh, but then she actually references them specifically later in the book. So I thought, well, we'll just, that'll be part of the discussion. I'm not going to go with those. Maybe a less obvious one would be Naked Lunch by William Burroughs uh, from 1959. Not in any way plot wise, although I guess that they have some kind of superficial similarities in terms of like a common person working for an agency and a mysterious doctor, et cetera, et cetera. But really more in the language and the aesthetic of the narrative and William Burroughs, you know, being obviously very much in his own surreal world and having these kind of interesting ideas about desire and about liberation as uh, as a destroyer, I think is something that he shares with uh, the ideas in this book. And I was happy to like look afterwards and see that Angela Carter is indeed a big Burroughs fan. So I'm sure she probably had read this at some point. Not again, like these novels are anything really uh, alike, but you can just kind of see... You, you kind of fall into this rabbit hole from these authors in a way that you don't from others. And there's also kind of the idea of synthetics throughout this book that makes you think a little bit about Philip K. Dick, speaking of uh, Galactic Pothaler, you know, um, his book, To Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, which of course became Blade Runner, which is a title borrowed from William Burroughs. 
and another podcast I've always wanted to do, Martin. I know we've already talked about Total Recall on this show, but we should like talk about Naked Lunch compared sure. to Total Recall, the David Cronenberg <laughs> movie, because there's a lot of connection there as well. So I go with Naked Lunch, even though it's a uh, it's a weird fucking book. What else can I say? It's a strange one, uh, but I think that that is what makes it a good aperitif for this particular book. Okay getting into the book itself and i think we're just kind of going to go chronologically just kind of go chapter by chapter as you know she is a uh supreme short uh, story writer she kind of you know does a great job compartmentalizing the the picaresque story of this character into different sections of the book uh, really well divided into uh these different adventures that he's having so the basic uh, plot this basic story of infernal desire machines is that this, there's a city, a major city, unnamed city, that is under attack by Dr. Hoffman, who has created machines that have made these apparitions, these phantoms of unreality, kind of take over and crack the time-space continuum of the of, of reality. The city, he she mentions it being overtaken by 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 trees and nature, sort of like a fairy tale forest. She mentions a clock tower that explodes into fireworks. There's a lot of really great imagery when she's kind of going through this, and enough for like an entire novel by itself. It could all take place in the city, as far as I'm concerned. She talks about the ministers, the uh, the people from the uh, Ministry of Determination, getting together to try to figure out what to do, and they're on like a shaky boat. One of them like falls overboard. But the minister himself, who is somehow immune to these uh, attacks of unreality, is able to just walk like Jesus across the water and like join them in their meeting on the boat. Uh, anyway, so they the main character is a guy named Desiderio, who is described as a man like an unmade bed. Basically, he's assigned to assassinate Dr. Hoffman and end this attack on the city and goes through a mythological landscape of desire in these uh, series of adventures uh, that he is sort of compelled to go on because he's been visited by who he believes is Dr. Hoffman's daughter, who comes to him in the form of uh, glass or ice, who he has, who in his dreams, he kind of is determined he's going to be the woman that he is destined to find and kind of goes on this journey more than anything to kind of find her. Uh, and it's eight chapters. The first one, the city under siege, again, is sort of describes uh, this unreality attacking the city. Kind of Martin has a feel of... Oh Doom, City, Doom City, or... thank you. The Doom yeah. City, the, the book that we had read about, you know, monkeys, monkey attacks, and everything, yeah. like all these surreal things that are attacking the city in this. Um, Even some of the more brothers. mundane things, like talking about her use of language. There's a part where she's describing this swan, and she describes it like it's the most disgusting animal that has ever existed. It's so good. Her description of it that was one of my favorite things when I was getting into the book. The way she can describe things, it kind of gives them a new dimension or new life. It's not just the surreality of it. It's also just how it's brought to life that I think really makes it stand out. All these uh, strange things happening. Yeah, she's good at describing the mundane. So whenever she gets into the more surreal and bizarre, it's a way I've never thought about anything. Like the way she just chooses to describe something. It's that's why it's every time it's like something like that, I would get done reading it and I just be like, oh, it's so good. It's great. And I love, again, there's like a lot of comedy in this chapter. There's uh, just all the efforts to uh, defend themselves against this attack on a, this unreality attack where they have, you know, machines, determination machines just to figure out if something is real or if it isn't, and how Dr. Hoffman kind of counters that by just having more powerful waves, you know, take take the city. 
and this this concern that people are going to impregnate uh, something that doesn't exist an illusory apparition that they can have a child and you know half real and half right. unreal yeah <laughs> <laughs> these kind of like very you know departmental concerns that are that are pretty hilarious and when the description that you guys had said too about you know the mundane one thing i love that one one phrase i love is too squalid to be illusory she said you can tell something isn't quite unreal if it's so mundane right it's so uh, of commonplace uh, but this albertina who's who visits desiderio is um something that he's convinced is someone he's convinced is real even though these other unrealities all around him all these illusory things around him are clearly you know destroying the city and kind of like making it fall apart um and then we move into chapter two which is the mansion of midnight where you really kind of appreciate why Neil Jordan, Neil Jordan, not Michael Jordan, would be such a big fan of hers because, you know, he comes upon this um, speechside carnival and the descriptions are like out of an early Neil Jordan novel because he was a novelist before he did films. And then as it translated into his films, Martin, we've talked about Neil Jordan before. Yes. On podcast, uh, you know, the just these like the sad, empty, unattended carnivals by the sea or like that's like that's Neil the, the seaside yeah seaside trilogy yeah yeah exactly <laughs> the seaside trilogy just in a in a nutshell right there but here's and the where... peep show yeah. oh it's... god martin talk about the peep show because that's one of my favorite parts of this book it's crazy well there's this uh peep show where the i guess there's a blind man who's watching it and I forget how much it is. It's a quarter, right? Yeah. To get it. But like, because he's blind, all the other people who had gone through just would like throw detritus instead of quarters, but uh, Desiderio actually pays him. And then the peep show, it's so strange. Like when it's talking about these um, very realistic wax dummies that are like so realistic, they stop being realistic. And it's describing how like each individual armpit hair has been inserted and it, it gets uh, pretty pretty bizarre yeah and it turns out the proprietor of this peep show is you know a former professor of dr hoffman's and so the kind of concept of unreality is sort of represented by this like disgusting used peep show with all these like uh disgusting images and desiderio meets marianne who's a woman who works there she's a sonambulist with the circus and he takes advantage of her during one of her sonambulant states and afterwards, he finds her drowned in the water, and everyone thinks that he did it. It's kind of the first character we're going to meet, where like relationship where there's sort of like a form of domestication and um, you know sexual slavery. All the women are kind of represented as you know cooking for him, cleaning for him, becoming sort of wife or mother surrogates for him. This kind of interesting sort of Ophelia kind of end for her. This idea of you know, after a woman is deflowered or, you know, she's given herself to someone, she has no purpose but to die, right? To wash up on the shore as like an empty shell. Kind of gets us like ready for like the kind of adventures this guy's going to be going on and kind of the relationships he's going to be having with women. The most fun that I have in the book, because there's, it goes to places that are not that fun, but it's still enjoyable. But I think chapter one and two are just a lot of, it's kind of setting you up for she's building the world and it's going to crumble, but it's, there's a lot of humor in the first two chapters that you don't get as much throughout. So it kind of lulls you into like, oh, this is, we're going on a journey. It's going to be fun. And yeah, I think the, 
So what he's originally doing, and he kind of gets his mission that he's going out in chapter one to assassinate Dr. Hoffman, but he's going undercover and they send him off to investigate the mayor being missing. So I just, I love that it's kind of, there's so much espionage and, but it's not, like, it's so... I don't know. It's just funny that he's being sent out. And then what ends up happening is he gets accused of this crime. And since he's undercover, they don't know who he is. So it's like, all right, we're locking you up. That's it. You're done. You killed a girl. Um, And it turns out that the housekeeper that was watching the girl and the, oh, who is it? The city. It's like the town hall clerk. I think both of them conspire against him. So I do like that immediately he's got this plan and then he gets set up and everything's foiled at chapter two. So he's immediately off course. It's just a lot of fun. Yeah. It's funny that nobody buys the story that he's searching for this missing mayor, you know, in town. And it's been established that like a lot of people just disappeared among, you know, these assaults of unreality. And so people are just vanishing all the time. Why would you care about this one guy? Uh, Yeah, you're right. I mean, that, that stuff is very funny. And it's, well, even his daughter is like, he's not coming back. He didn't come back to tend to the roses. He's gone. Right. And the, what does she say? Um, it's probably something to do with a woman. Like, it's just so nonchalant about your dad's gone. It's cool. No big deal. <laughs> Quite a few lines that sort of jump out. Like, um, I, again, talking about the blind professor, when it describes him crying, and Desiderio's thinking like, well, he must still have eyes and <laughs> if he can cry, but I forget the exact line. I didn't write it down, but it, like, it was a really poignant moment. There are a couple lines that just pack that kind of a punch too, as fun and fast as these early chapters are. Yeah. I think it comes up in a later chapter where he says, you know, the, the proprietor goes to sleep, the only place where he can see, right. Like he's the only exists <laughs> yeah. for yeah. these dreams, these desires that he can still have when he's asleep. Uh, but yeah, it's it's an interesting contrast to the, you know the early scenes in the city. And again, once you're kind of there, she establishes you know the city for so long that you kind of think, oh, we're going to be here for a while. And that she kind of immediately releases this guy into the wild on his picaresque adventure. It's uh, it's interesting that she's able to kind of switch gears so quickly and still and establish a whole other world again, this seaside carnival. And each chapter she does that. I mean, that yeah. when he goes to a new place, you know, there's just new characters and new adventures uh, right away and new worlds that are kind of being constructed. It's kind of hard to keep up sometimes. It's uh, so I love that kind of contrast between the first two chapters. So then we meet in the next chapter, the river people who live on barges on the water. And it's been established that he has uh, some Indian background and that kind of, uh, and because they come from, you know, an Indian background, he's able to kind of, get in with them right away as he's a fugitive and decides he's going to hide out with the river people. It describes it as um, his mother, who was a prostitute, was of Indian extraction. India, India, like I was picturing as Desiderio, uh, you know, Boris Karloff or somebody like that. And then I got to this chapter and I wasn't sure if she meant Indian from India. I thought this might be like your chapter though, Martin, because she really gets into like anthropology kind of stuff here, yeah. kind of, you know, rituals and customs of these river people. And I thought like, this is up Martin's alley for sure. Sign language I thought was really interesting. He gets comfortable, right? It's kind of becomes the, uh, 
I don't know. Ah, I always, I never have like a good like example to jump to. I want to say dances with wolves, you know, where a guy like you know, gun, you know, joins a different culture and starts to appreciate it and becomes realize he's found his home in this, uh, you know, this different kind of society. But he, um, because he can read and write, he can help them, you know, with their various bartering on the river. He helps them from getting cheated, and it's considered sort of black robe esque, you know, power that he has. Everyone appreciates him for it. To the point that the chieftain kind of says, like, you're my guy. Like, you're going to marry my daughter. You're going to be, like, you know, the big guy in the tribe now. So everything seems great. He really enjoys living with them. He's going to marry this nine-year-old <laughs> daughter. Yeah, yeah. Yep, he sure is. <laughs> I do find um, it interesting that he, as he, after he escapes from prison and uh, he's a fugitive, he's running out and he just collapses into the chief's hands like into his arms and they just take him and immediately he's part of the family like it's very quick of just you're into the fold you're one of us like, come on come on this journey and yeah, yeah, it really. is really cool his interactions this is another um yeah it's not i wouldn't say as as fun as the first two chapters but i do you you really get a, again, you just get such a good sense of everything. So it's like, you can, you see these people, like the way she describes everything and you kind of get a sense of their community and their customs. It's, it's, I really, I love this chapter, even though he does marry a nine-year-old or is, is about to marry a nine-year-old, I should say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then there's a, there's some tough, there's some tough things. Yeah. She does yeah. not, she does not uh, back down from descriptions of him being with the nine-year-old. We'll just nope. leave it at that. <laughs> But it's there's there's a lot of funny humor in this chapter, too, because, I mean, I love that the daughter has this doll that she carries around in the red dress. And when he looks closer, he realizes it's just a fish in a dress that she yeah. carries around that they are constantly replenishing with new fish after it gets stinky and, and, and raw. So she constantly has this new fish as a doll every single day. And that pays off because he finally discovers, or he at least suspects, that their ultimate plan for him after they, um, after he marries the daughter is they're going to eat him and therefore observe, absorb his power of being able to read and write because he's uh, sat down with Gulliver's travels and tried to like get the guy to write out the words. And the guy he's like, ah, I can't get it. I'm too old. I know too many of these old river people customs. I can't learn anything new. So he suspects that they're just going to eat him. And it's supposedly confirmed when he is walking around after their big wedding party, their, their engagement party, and he sees his nine-year-old bride-to-be lying there with her, her adorable little fish doll. And it has a knife hidden inside of its mouth. And she's saying to herself, tomorrow, do it tomorrow. <laughs> this is Maybe what I should have done before life. I read Passions of New Eve. I should have eaten somebody to gain their knowledge. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so obviously his, uh, you know, his utopia is not exactly what he hoped it would be. And he has to flee the river people. So he would not be consumed by them. That's also a very like science fiction thing. Anytime there's a utopia, it's like I bet they're like eating people. You know Every I mean? time, like, yeah. there's something going on. It's always the most sinister. Like they they're too nice. They're too welcoming. Yeah. What's the catch? <laughs> what's the catch here? But I really love the description. Whenever he is saying his goodbyes, he obviously there. Are asleep everyone's passed out or asleep but i do i just love the i can't remember exactly how she words it but it's like he kisses the cold cheeks and in that moment he's kind of heartbroken and you kind of feel it like it's it's you go on this you know 
with all like on these barges with these people and whenever he parts the you can tell it's it's sad for him he's grown a you know a fondness and bond yeah but at the same time he can't just kind of just escape his quest his very personal quest which is that you know he sees the daughter dancing around and the face of albertina this woman this apparition who's come before him is superimposed over the face of the daughter and he's so he's obviously still thinking about going out to find her and you know kind of figuring out what it's all about and his desires will you know can't be curbed even by his domestic bliss with these people so you know whether or not they were going to eat him or not he's obviously going to like continue onto his quest and what he does is he ends up escaping and then he ends up back at the carnival in chapter four uh which is called acrobats of desire acrobats of desire um has a fantastic sequence uh where he's basically again he's talking to this uh proprietor this former professor who you know kind of taught dr hoffman everything he knows we learned about mendoza who was this kind of crazy guy in dr hoffman's class who had these really crazy ideas about uh if a thing were sufficiently artificial if it were artificial enough it would become absolutely equivalent to the genuine and uh these abstractions were only true because since they did not exist they could be proved or disproved entirely by the whim of the investigator and these are all obviously very abstract non-scientific ideas which dr hoffman his co-student was able to utilize and to put into actual scientific effect by creating his desire machines uh but that kind of introduces one of the big themes of the book you know which is this idea of uh you know if you desire something enough then it becomes a real thing you know uh there's a part later on where they I think Albertina mentions a fable where a person, a hunter, is out looking for rabbits and thinks they see a rabbit and shoots an arrow. And uh, it turns out to be a rock, but the arrow went through the rock because they were so convinced it was a rabbit that it, you know, still managed to strike it and uh, and uh, and go through it. Um, and I will, I can't even kind of summarize this this passage because there's so many ideas thrown out at you and they they talk about film specifically and the idea that was really funny because um we were just talking about man with a movie camera the other day and there's that whole description uh, i was thinking about it during our conversation talking about like well the flow of time it's forwards but then film can reverse the flow of time and getting into all of that stuff and talking about cinema it's um, very tough philosophy yeah. right yes Absolutely. exactly <laughs> It's fantastic stuff, and and you know it kind of makes up the basis of uh, Hoffman's phenomenal dynamics that you know it led to the creation of these machines. Uh, the idea of the orgasm being a durationless infinity that every produces energy. Do. It's yes, <laughs> or as we later, as they later term it, they don't call it here, but erato energy, which yeah. is going to end up fueling. <laughs> which this feels machine. like something right out of like Barbarella. It's... Yeah, it does. It's very Barbarella. <laughs> And a lot of this too is from, you know, I already mentioned Gulliver's Travels is an obvious uh, influence on this book, but Alfred Jerry, you know, the surrealist writer is another huge influence on Carter. Obviously this book specifically, uh, his book, his posthumous book, Exploits and Opinions of Dr. Faustrel, pet, Pataphysician. And the idea of pataphysician, pat, pataphysics is basically a parody of science. <laughs> it's basically an idea that the virtual or imaginary nature of things is glimpsed by the heightened vision of poetry or science or love can be seized and lived as real is sort of the Dr. Hoffman philosophy, right? If you have desire, you have creative impulse, you can make so you can bring something into reality kind of comes from Jerry specifically. And again, 
I, I am doing this a huge disservice trying to summarize. It's just like, go read this section. It is such a profound and like fun and poetic part of this book. I absolutely love it. And, you know, it just brings up things I love, like film and everything like that. And it's like, yes, the idea, like so much art philosophy in here. I can't, I cannot even, and then we haven't even gotten to the acrobats themselves. <laughs> Martin, I'm going to let you tell us who the acrobats of desire are. Oh my God. Um, what to say about the acrobats of desire. <laughs> They're Sorry. Moroccan. You can start with that. Right. Um, it's nine Moroccan men. Yep. <laughs> nine Moroccan men <laughs> who juggle their own body parts you kind of like if you've seen labyrinth you know the part where the guys are tossing their heads around you get an idea like they take off their legs their appendages their it's heads the they're dance, them yeah. all around in a big fire dance for everybody and desidario it's funny because this is a guy who is coming from a city that is plagued by unreality his, his very specific assignment is to go and kill this man who is creating these apparitions and these unrealities and then he sees something like guys taking off their body parts and flinging them around in front of an audience. And he's like, how'd they do that? <laughs> well, know, he's totally astounded is by that it. He's so sardonic and so unaffected by any of the surrealism that he's just like, I'm bored by it. So it makes this very funny that he's like a child fascinated at the circus. Like, how are they doing this with mirrors? This is incredible. It's really funny. <laughs> they're all really likable. I said likable. They're interesting. They are. There's they're, a lot of interesting they're... characters in this chapter. And I am guess I'm going to have to be the one to say they gang rape in the tent when he goes to visit yeah. them, or their van when he, they, when he goes to visit them. They serve, is it, they give him something to, is it coffee that makes it to where he can, he can handle it, I guess. I don't know. I don't even know how you phrase it. Right. Some kind of a, uh, yeah. He's mm -hmm. imbibed something that basically like puts him in the right mood, the right mindset to make love with all of these acrobats at the same time. <laughs> that I'm just going to get more and more bashful as we go on. This is, <laughs> this is just a start. <laughs> I'm going to stop calling on you, Martin, at some point. <laughs> Sorry. I'm when you ask me to say. <laughs> you knew you were like, he just wants me to explain the gang rape. I know. <laughs> I know. I know it wasn't going to get out of it, but it was it was fun making Martin giggle like a little schoolgirl, though. So, uh, and then the entire uh, the entire circus, which, uh, yeah, I mean, Melanie mentioned all these great characters. There's uh, Mamie Buckskin, the sharpshooter. Killing was only an effect of her virtuosity. A great line. She's a fantastic character. There's the bearded lady, Madame Labarbe, who, again, oh, like, yeah. kind of fits into this domestic role of like bringing him fresh brioche every morning. There's the alligator man who is an alligator man. <laughs> You know, what more do you need to need than my reptilian week? friend? Yeah, <laughs> to have a, a killer croc type character in your your novel is fantastic, and all these characters, along with the acrobats of desire, are killed in an avalanche. Which, after his uh, rogering by the acrobats, you know, he Desidero kind of withdraws to a cave. You know, and all their desire could not put them back together again. All the desire, <laughs> <laughs> or after their dissolution, something like that. And uh, does the the professor or the uh, peep show proprietor, he goes over with them, doesn't he? Right. He gets, yeah, yeah. Yep. they're all wiped out. Exactly. And the and the peep show specifically, which he considers like a real tragedy, you know, as that is sort of the, the most purest form of Dr. Hoffman's, uh, the, the whole philosophy that started Dr. Hoffman's desire machines is kind of this creepy old peep show that he, you know, changes day in, day out, is, is gone, wiped out in this avalanche. This entire town is wiped out. 
Um, and Desiderio was once again left alone. Uh, pretty much, you kind of feel like the river people got off pretty lightly because most of the characters he meets do not end up well. Yeah, the end, you know, by the end of their chapter. Uh, but then we meet the erotic traveler, who is maybe my favorite character of the book, the Count from Lithuania. <laughs> Just a uh, reality deviant, I think is what they call him. He's dedicated his life to the humiliation and exaltation of the flesh. And if you thought the acrobats of desire were bad, this guy is literally the worst. He, you know just once he, he is completely solipsistic and he just believes that he's the most important person in the world and therefore everyone should serve him and you know kind of whatever his desires are like they should kind of fall before him he's got a he's got a disaster fetish yeah <laughs> that's right he loves the avalanche because of his disaster fetish he's clearly like a desaad surrogate but he's called the count so you can't help thinking that he's like you know kind of a classic vampire look, like aristocratic vampire look with his you know his vest and his Finements that he wears, and he has this um, masked valet named Lafleur, who is kind of a mystery character. And it's funny because the whole time Desiderio thinks, "Oh, the Count might be the Doctor in disguise," you know, because of his uh, his philosophy on you know turning out reality and you know kind of bending it to his own will and his own desires. Sort of sort of fits the philosophy of Doctor Hoffman, and never suspects that Lafleur might be somebody different, but. He basically becomes like the second servant to this Count character as they're traveling. They um, end up at the House of Anemone in the bestial room of the House of Anemone. And that's where the passage that we opened up the episode kind of comes from, where you have these monkeys holding candles, you have these women in cages. Uh, the whole thing really reminds me actually of one of Angela Carter's very best stories from the Bloody Chamber, The Lady of the House of Love, which is another vampire. Well, I say another vampire story. The Count is not explicitly a vampire in this, but uh, definitely a parasite, a lecherer. Of, he, she's thinking of vampires, obviously. And Lady from the House of Love is a very straightforward vampire story. I just say straightforward. It's nothing but straight, nothing but like straightforward. It is a fantastic story that I highly recommend. And the House of Animity uh, is where they get attacked, assaulted by the police. It's why all the furniture that is living and the, <laughs> the lion couches and whatnot are kind of running around. And she becomes uh, like a beautiful, surreal ballet within this house, this uh, kind of house of prostitution that they end up at i like that they mention quebec (laughs) (laughs) where where lafleur was hired that's right so he's got his face covered up because he's uh he's got syphilis yeah this is i don't know if it's i like in passion of new eve it didn't hit me the same way but for whatever reason in this story this time when I was reading it, anytime she would mention something that was so normal, like Las Vegas or a Jeep, it was it was like a speed bump in the story. And it would yeah. take me out. I was like, whoa. Yeah, yeah this is I because it's I, so out of time and place for me. And there's so much that's unnamed, like the beginning. It's an unnamed city. And at one point, I mean, we go to Africa, but it's you never really know exactly where you are. And there, there's a moment towards time. the end when the helicopters show up and it's like oh right we're in that century like it, it's almost yeah. like the end of walker when the helicopters show up like <laughs> c- certain elements feel so like this does feel at times like it could take place in the 19th century or earlier with these castles and counts and things like that yeah it feels sort of out of time yeah and there's definitely a couple moments during this chapter where things would get mentioned because it gets so it ramps up to such a degree it's everything's just like falling all over the place and she'll just mention something that's so normal like quebec and you're like wait what <laughs> yes quebec exists in this world 
<laughs> which I guess it makes sense if you have um, if you have fantasy invading the reality, it, it makes sense to kind of describe things as mundane and related to things that exist in the real world. But also it, it feels maybe not exactly like a fairy tale, but again, like I keep thinking of it as like the Japanese anime kind of a world where it just sort of exists in its own out of time and dimension. place. Yeah. 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 So, but again, it's, it works to a great effect because every time it happens, I'm like, oh yeah, this is real, but it's not. <laughs> right. That is funny how the most grounded things are the most out of place and, yeah. and, and odd in this story. He's chilling with the river people, bartering for fish, and then they're breaking out the guns and shooting at each other at one point. Yeah, it's, I agree. Uh, another thing I love about the count, he's being chased, <laughs> pursued. I- uh, yep. fugitive like by a pimp who he offended and because the count is such a perfect deviant the ultimate thing that for him is self-destruction so he he almost welcomes his death by this raging pimp who again you know uh, in this kind of gothic setting uh of this house of anonymity <laughs> to say then the pimp came in <laughs> definitely <laughs> makes you go pause for a second these two chapters are just so five and six are just so off the wall. So like I was going back there and I was like, oh yeah, that does happen. Yep. But yeah, I do. I just love that the count is, he, he acts like he's fine. Like he's accepted, you know, yeah, this is, I'm, I'm going to die. It's probably, this guy's going to do it, but he's still scared of the pimp. And it's just the fact that we're even talking about a pimp in this is very funny. (laughs) So out of place, but also perfectly where it should be. Well, it's funny that she draws from literary tropes, you know, kind of past and present, you know, where there's obviously stuff with, you know, again, a person who comes into a native culture, you know, there's a lot of that kind of stuff in literature, thinking Conrad or whatever, uh, and then kind of becoming absorbed in this different kind of ritualistic sort of society. And then you have pimps. You know, from, you know, like crime novels of the time, like from the 60s and 70s, like a very contemporary idea, but also like, like a not okay idea that a lot of people were using, you know, as a literary device at the time. Yeah. I'm going to throw in that kind of character is, uh, it it works. It works for the story in a weird way. (laughs) So they escape, they escape the, uh, the house of anonymity. And then in chapters, uh, chapter six is titled the coast of Africa. And this time, the the, because both of them are being hunted by the determination police for murder, they uh, decide (laughs) right being hunted as murderers. (laughs) Um, And it well turns out like Lafleur was Albertina in disguise, right? Yeah, Yeah. we don't know that yet. Oh, okay, sorry, that might be. Yeah, no, no, it's okay, but that yeah. But it is the chapter that we we discover it, yeah. Okay, this is but right I, I didn't I didn't break my notes down by chapter. So <laughs> at this point, Lafleur still is just the counts. Well, valid is the polite way of saying it. Sex yeah. slave, I think, would be the less polite way of saying it. Um, the count's boy, we would say. But they, anyway, they decide that they're going to. Well, the count decides that they're going to flee to Europe which uh, Desiderio is not happy about because it means it's going to take him further away from Albertine and from his, you know, his mission to find her. But they end up on this ship where they recognize they're recognized. And it's funny because this whole section kind of becomes like an inverse of the Demeter chapter from Dracula, you know, where you've got the count on his ship, but instead of him eating the crew and killing the crew, they get the advantage of him and they chain him up, you know, and put him below and turn around to go turn him in for the reward money. 
And uh, so it becomes this kind of really all of a sudden, very funny, very mundane situation where the three of them are chained up and forced to eat bread with weevils wiggling around inside of it and tepid water. And uh, it's just like a miserable experience for for the Count. Uh, but luckily for them, they're set upon by pirates who pirates behead the entire, peru- uh, the entire crew. Uh, they end up on the pirate vessel and the pirates, believing that they are murderers, like the river people kind of immediately take them into their into their uh their clan into their uh, their group and decide you know to have this hedonistic party right off the coast of africa they're gonna break out all their ill-gotten kegs and uh, just have like a crazy party uh in the middle of a hurricane so not a great decision as lafleur points out uh they end up uh everyone everyone ends up basically passed out and uh the count takes over the wheel and everyone's bodies get swept over the ship so the three of them, LaFleur, the Count, and Desiderio end up uh, exiled on this unnamed part of Africa and are immediately captured by this tribe. And this, I think, you know, is when I brought up, you know, the whole idea of like the pimp being like, well, she's taking, you know, these uh, uh, things that were definitely being like tropes from different literary sources and kind of using them for this genre novel. I think it's most important to bring it up here because he thinks that the pimp is the chieftain of this uh, this tribe because he, he serves the same function, right? Where it's like, you know, oh, we're, you know, it's a bunch of people taken by this uh, tribe in Africa who are cannibals and, you know, who are killers. It's a literary trope. And, you know, like she uses it really well here, especially because the Count, believing this to be his pimp, his destiny is like, go ahead and cook me up. Go ahead and eat me. And that's exactly what they do. The Count gets turned into soup in a very fun and satisfying moment and that martin is where we learn that lafleur is in fact uh the woman of his desire the woman he's been seeking after she takes off the mask because it prompts him to action he decides to save them instead of becoming you know side dishes to the count soup you know he actually brings into action and frees them and gets them away from these people so it's kind of becomes this like fun adventure story all of a sudden where he's not just a picaresque, you know, uh, anti-hero who's kind of just hanging around and like, you know, being picked up by different people. He's actually taking action and becoming something like a an Alan Quatermain type of character all of a sudden. It's interesting talking about the different genres and tropes that it's pulling on. It, like it, it has that 1960s, 70s kind of madcap feel to it. It's it's a little bit like, I don't know, it, it makes me think of like the end of The Magic Christian or something where you can have... Yeah, Dracula you know what running this, around on a ship, and I, you know what this chapter specifically reminded me of was Troma's War. You know, something like that. Oh, I don't think I've seen that, but it's like a specific kind of, like a, you know, all these different characters and genres kind of mashed together in a way that I'm not sure if you see it quite it quite in the same way. I think madcap is the right word, though. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's all these things kind of thrown together. Like, I, you know, you can almost picture a poster for this being like a almost like a mad magazine cover or something like that you know yeah like a jack davis uh, poster i could see that yeah. for sure <laughs> they made this in the like early 70s definitely peter yates would have directed it i don't know why that just feels right i i really like the description it was so funny talking about like the smell of the count and it's like oh he's almost finished cooking it's <laughs> he smelled yeah. delicious yeah it's really funny but i also i do like how talking about manifestation all these things it's this chapter a lot of it is just about destiny kind of correcting the course and taking back over where it's 
Albertina, you know, he rescues her and they reunite and the count convinced that the pimp is going to kill him. The pimp does kill him. It's a nice kind of end cap for the characters we had been with up until this point and kind of shifting us to the end of the story. Yeah, and definitely kind of gets us used to the idea now that uh, Albertina is revealed to have been this character all along, Lafleur, that everything he's been experiencing, we've already saying, you know, who knows which of these characters are exist in reality, who knows which ones are yeah. constructs of these machines. <laughs> uh, but there's even more of this implication of like, these are the same people, you know, like Albertina, that the doctor are uh, all all these characters are somehow iterations of them that he's kind of running into again and again that he's already again suspected that the count might be the doctor and you can uh, obviously all the women that he's had these relationships with i mean we kind of glossed over but he's mentioned that he has you know intimate relationship with all the women at the carnival working at the carnival that they're all kind of these early iterations of albertina and he's kind of reliving these bringing her into yeah into the story or it's also that's also like a familiar trope like uh, uh, uh louise brooks in beggars of life like her being the boy in disguise and then you know revealing that she's a woman like that's kind of a established trope but like i i think you're right that there's sort of that sense that by him thinking about her he's kind of bringing her into the plot in a way right yeah then like the character might yeah. have just transformed into her that any yeah. character could just transform into her at any point that's already been all these since that he sees her face, you know, on the face of different characters and that he's actually bringing her into his reality again and again. And just to kind of go back to your thing about saying it's kind of madcap. Another thing it reminds me of, I think William uh, um, Georgeberg actually had written a review of this novel and um, mentioned Fellini's Satyricon, which is kind of a okay. picaresque kind of thing, you know, where all almost all the situations end up in this kind of either hedonistic party or uh, destruction, you know, complete destruction of a family or whatever. And so kind of going from one episode to another. I mean, they're also both difficult to summarize where it's like very difficult. What, what, what is the plot? To it's, not, it's not about the destination. It's about yeah. the journey. So it's just, yeah, it's hard to summarize. The filthy CD journey. <laughs> <laughs> no, there is a lot of similarities, which I, a lot of people compare these two stories, but Passion of New Eve, I feel like is kind of a more focused episodic in nature and it's the same you know character moving through all of this but there's a lot of is this person th there's a lot of duality with people and characters in that story as well so i think it's a really good pairing for this book if you while i wouldn't recommend starting with dr hoffman i do think pairing it with passion of new eve is it's that's those are really good bookends for each other there's a lot of uh commonality there's so much similar to it and I believe Passion of New Eve was originally supposed to be a sequel to this, but she ended up yeah. making its own story. Yeah, it was going to yeah. be like a trilogy of books originally. And uh, then she kind of made it sort of its own standalone thing. But it makes sense that they would be kind of thematically linked like that. That's funny to hear that they're similar and they're linked in that way. Just having only read those two, it's like, oh, I guess this is Angela Carter's thing i guess they're all like this <laughs> no, that's, well kind of but no those are very very closely linked on purpose yeah no i that's agree interesting. Her, later, her later books are yeah much different not much different i mean she's still angela carter obviously but they you know definitely kind of move away from what i think she's got again when, when we talk about her exploring genre tropes specifically 
again, besides Jerry and Gulliver and things like that, that are obvious influence. Kafka obviously is an influence. It's almost kind of like she's finding again, kind of bringing kind of latent thematic ideas of those and kind of making them manifest in this book in a way that is sort of like her thesis statement for the, you know, uh, just for the narrative of this specific book. So we move from the coast of Africa uh, after he has saved them and they've run off to Lost in Nebulous Time, Chapter 7, where they meet centaurs, because why not? It's interesting because, again, you know, everyone says... <laughs> very religious uh, centaurs. That very oh, religious. Uh, <laughs> it's funny because everyone's, you know, again, they want to like say, oh, she's a fantasy novelist. And it's like, look, she has centaurs in the next chapter. What more do you need? And it's like, yeah, but like... These are not the kind of centaurs you meet in a fantasy. No, th this was the part when I was reading it where I had to message you. And I was like, <laughs> I'm at the part with the centaurs. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Keep talking, Martin. Yeah, go for it. What, what happens, Martin? <laughs> well, okay. Maybe they're not, in fact, actually centaurs, as is hinted. Maybe they've just been so obsessed with horses that they appear to be centaurs. They become centaurs through their devotion to this... Uh, horny horse god. <laughs> so, yeah, no, maybe not your typical centaurs. Well, the kind it's, I mean, I don't, I can't speak for my typical centaurs. Don't most of them defecate and tribute to their horse god? I mean, it's, one would like assume. It, it seems like it makes sense. <laughs> maybe I'm not that familiar. Point is, these are not the kind that I, you, I just know the ones from Fantasia. Yeah. <laughs> The kids in a wrinkle in time are not going to fly these particular centaurs over the rainbow. Uh, but yeah, there's there are all these funny lines about how they uh, might just be people who want to be horses so much that they've turned themselves into half horses. But, you know, she uses this chapter to, again, kind of explore domestication. And, you know, the you know the, the, the female centaurs are obviously kind of put on a lower rung than the, than the males. They do all the work. They cook all the food. Uh, they make all the babies, you know, and this is, again, I think is Carter kind of saying, you know, this is the kind of, you know, society where desire is completely abandoned because everyone is just has a role to play. And the idea being that desire in a, in a, a woman having desire is something that, you know, is just not explored enough in literature, in film, anything like that. And that's, that's really kind of her feminist take is that, Without desire, a woman is just a wife or a mother, and that's it. Or they're a centaur, you know, waiting to flatten out a tortilla for their their male centaur husband when he the comes. Sacred home. stallion, yeah. <laughs> the sacred stallion. That's a really that would be like a good DJ name, though. Sacred stallion. I can see it. <laughs> Wild sacred stallion. <laughs> Shit signified its presence. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of uncomfortable stuff in this chapter as well, where, you know, yeah. they're kind of scientifically exploring uh, Desiderio and Albertina's anatomy and thoughtlessly rape Albertina. Uh, and the way he describes place. it, too, it's like they're not even trying to be malicious. It's just like they don't know yeah. how delicate the humans are. So the, the way they handle them is harmful and it... Yeah, it's it's really kind of unsettling to read, actually. It's incredibly unsettling, but it's interesting that he's gone out of his way to mention how they have these horrible punishments for infidelity, right? That they like skin their the hide of the woman and leave it on the bed for the next wife to kind of remember not to cheat on the husband. These kind of awful sort of, you know, very primitive 
uh, punishments, you know, put on these women and that the fact that they bring her in and they're just like, okay, well, let's all have sex with her now just to see what it's like, <laughs> you know, without realizing what harm they're doing to her uh, is, yeah, it's, it's tough. It's a tough sequence to get through. Yeah, this is probably the most like people that don't like a lot of the things that Carter writes about sexual taboos. I feel like this is the chapter that people would be like, I'm out. I'm, I can't do this because it's a lot. It's so much. And it's, yeah, I rereading it, it even was kind of giving me like, yeah, it's just very uncomfortable, kind of dissociating. Like, ugh. This is also probably the thing I'm going to remember for the rest of my life about this book. I'm like, oh yeah, the one with the rapey centaurs. Yep. <laughs> the most memorable sexual assault of the book, you would say. I Sure, I <laughs> put that on the cover. I read a bunch of negative reviews on this just because I was curious. I want, I always tend to do that anyways, but I wanted to see like, okay, so what were people's hangups? As you can imagine, they the centaurs got mentioned a lot. Yeah, yeah. I, I can see this being the chapter that a lot of people would just give up on the book. Yeah, and that happened. A lot of people were like, I didn't finish it. It's like, well, okay. <laughs> Probably why she placed it so late in the book. <laughs> so at least they could lull you into it. Most of it uh, for the penultimate chapter. But it's funny because it's placed pretty much story-wise, it's placed like the same place as the Poifimims um, from Gulliver, the horse, the intelligent horses that he yep. ends up with. And she... Yeah, and I was thinking as a ring, and then boom, she name drops them. So it's like obviously she's thinking, I'm not like, smart. I'm the, she's thinking about this, obviously. Uh, and Gulliver, you know, obviously having this ridiculous appreciation of the Hephanims and their it's not Hephanims, it's Hoyams. It's really hard word to say. Hoyams, yeah. Hoyams, yeah. They um, but like his admiration of their passionless, completely banal existence, their you know, complete reliance on uh, uh tranquility and logic that is passionless and you know and desireless you know and it's obvious like again taking literary tropes from the past she's obviously bringing this up at this particular point to say uh yeah and you know what part of that is is passionless sex and sex that's harmful and they don't even think about it you know sex that they don't enjoy domesticating the, the females in the society it's in there it's there for a reason everybody you know it's not just that Angela Carter is really into centaur sex, but I might, I I am not familiar enough with fantasy. Melanie, maybe you can speak to this more than me, but like, uh, is there like a fan fiction kind of element to a lot of fantasy books where it's like centaur sex is something I'm reading about now and I am here for it. Yeah. Um, there's, <laughs> yes, obviously there is. Yeah. And I, my personal ads right now, I posted some, it's more on Instagram than Twitter, but I posted I got recommended and I'm not going to remember the name of it right now, which is tragic because it was an amazing cover. If I find it later, I'll send it to you guys just so you can see it. But it was the whole concept was like these alien creatures came to a planet and they were they had to impregnate the women there, obviously. And it was like all fantasy creatures. But it I mean, it was like stuff from from Dungeons and Dragons. But it was like written by a housewife. who It was just I'll send it to you. That's there's so much stuff in it. And now all of my ads are for these really bizarre, like fan made <laughs> novels that are, it's like, I'll, it's just a lot. They're like purple skin. And oh, yeah, I wish I could remember a title to even give an example, but it's 
wild. And that's all of my ads on Instagram right now are just these bizarre <laughs> novels. And I keep posting them because I'm like, this is amazing. Like, I love that. I, I'm not going to, I mean, I probably will end up reading it just because now I'm intrigued and this one author keeps coming up, but yeah, people are writing about it. To answer your question. Yes. There's yeah. a huge, huge, uh, I guess, need and want for those stories. They're out there. So, but no, I think Angela Carter, you know, even I think whenever there's characters that like Desiderio, I don't find him. I don't connect with him as much as some of her other narrators and main characters, but that's very purposeful. Like every, I think the way that you feel about the centaurs in this is very purposeful. It's not put in there to be a fun thing. She's saying something and you can with any of her writing with anything, you can just read it and enjoy it for what it is and take the picturesque, you know, story in. But if you want to, I mean, that's why there's, you know, feminine studies dedicated to Angela Carter's writings. You can break it down and there's so much there. It's, I don't know, but the reading this chapter again, I was crawling in my skin. It was so gross, like not gross. I shouldn't say that, but just very off-putting. Oh, I think gross is a fair word. I think, you know, I think that's what she was going for. Yeah. And I, I got to get on the Insta if I can get these uh, erotic alien story ads. There's so many. And it's like, I, okay, it was like seven alien brides for set, like seven, like it's those type of things. It's, <laughs> no. Really? Yeah. But it's, oh, I'll try to, I'll find covers. I've got them saved in my phone. It's not that I don't have them. I just to bring them up. I've taken so many screenshots of like, why is this being advertised to me? But then it's like, well, I did this to myself. I know that. <laughs> I look up really weird stuff all the time because if I have a question, I'm like, does this exist? It does. But so. I think so many of these, um, I mean, a lot of authors have like that oversimplified view of sex where, oh, it's all good or it's all bad. And I think what's kind of interesting is her getting into different extremes and exploring that. And there was a book I was reading just like out of curiosity. It was like what you're describing, these sort of trashy sexy romance kind of books and it was like somebody with telepathic powers and the sexuality in it was like very unself-reflexive and it made it really gross <laughs> it's oh, like yeah. oh like this is not it's not cool what's going on in this book and you know i'm sure it's somebody's fantasy but i, I think it's interesting in this book to kind of examine fantasy and take that to its extreme and yeah, I think it's, it's I think it's significant that this 50-year-old book is already getting ahead of the oh really you think centaur porn would be great? Like let's explore that a little bit, you know, maybe maybe not. I did find um, the author of the books I'm talking about, Honey Phillips, which is also just a great. Of course, that's Honey a good name Phillips. for her, but Honey, Honey Phillips. Phillips. And yeah. the covers are it's that's all that's being advertised to me right now and it's it's so oh of course yeah you know what I mean <laughs> the picture for alien alliance book four where there's like a buff centaur uh -huh. guy there's, and there's, there's a alien. it's like a green reptilian alien with abs yeah that's <laughs> great they're they're like series like each of these I mean she's very prolific because yep. they're like each like seven books long it's their deep series and yeah, but that's that's all I get advertised right now. So <laughs> I'm disappointed know. now, Melanie, that when I was like, let's do Angela Cardi, we're gonna be like, no, Honey Phillips. That's what we're doing. The like there's series. There's authors like um I think like probably the guy version would be like Eric Val, who just does like <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> seemingly like hundreds of books that are all like 
sexy dragon lady. And that's <laughs> sexy, all it is. Sexy, it, that's all it is. And like, pick a fantasy character. It's the sexy version of it. Yeah. Yeah, but there's definitely like a degradation throughout the narrative of this book, right? I mean, there are these various sexual assaults, and they kind of get worse. You know, where it starts off, where it's like the woman at the the sonambulist at the carnival, yeah. the kind of thing where horrible people today would be like, well, was it, was it rape? Yeah, it was rape. It was, but you she know, was walking, she was not conscious. Yes, exactly. But they're like, eh, was it? And then uh, the incident with the acrobats where it's like, is he manifesting this in his mind? Is, he, is this what he wants? Does he want to be passed around by a bunch of Moroccan acrobats? Uh, uh, is this something that he's actually, you know, desiring that he's like bringing forward? That's that also kind of has a question of, is this, yeah, because he's so entranced by them and he's I mean, studying their bodies, studying everything about them. So, yeah, in a way, you're kind of like, did he bring it on himself? Is this what he wanted in a way? Right, exactly. And then it comes to this and it's like, let me just read her. Let me just set you aside for a minute to say, this is not OK. Like, I'm just in case you were wondering, let me make you be as uncomfortable as possible. Uh, and again, I think as, as this character is getting closer and closer to these machines and uh, these desire machines, you know, things that are happening that demonstrate, you know, like a, a lack of desire are becoming more real for him. And kind of, even though he's in a centaur well, land, probably I, I think the least like, real moment of the, of the narrative. Not, not to jump too far ahead, but I think like that's one of the core ideas in the book is that our fantasies are better off as fantasies sometimes and that to bring them into the real world, partly like it's, it's destructive to our fantasies because when you make your fantasy real, like it doesn't, it doesn't exist anymore it kills it in a way but also like there are lots of things that we fantasize about that would be like terrible if we actually got them you know it, it's not exactly like be careful what you wish for but i think there's that idea that you know our fantasies are powerful because they are fantasies and not reality mm -hmm. right. and uh, destroy us sometimes if we actually get what we think we desire well and i think right. that that which this is moving whenever we move into the next chapter where kind of the way he starts talking about Albertina in particular, where he, yeah. you know, this fantasy that he's, he's been dreaming of, you know, this entire journey. And then he has her, she's there. And all of a sudden he's kind of, I won't say bored, but he starts to get kind of put off by certain things she's doing because he's got this fantasy built up in his head that she's going to behave a certain way that she's always going to be this, you know, glass figure in the shadows kind of in his mind. And then whenever she's there and she's giving out orders and instructions and being, you know, kind of militant to her father's will and desires, he's taken back kind of, and the fantasy's kind of shattered. Definitely. I, when she becomes yeah. the generalissimo, she's mm -hmm. least yeah. desirable. I mean, that's something that happens all the time in real life yeah. where people fantasize about somebody it's their dream person and then they end up with them and then like six weeks later they they could murder them <laughs> they're sick of them or bored All of them or hate yeah. them you know it's it's because you know there's that gap between the, the fantasy and the reality and when you actually get the fantasy and it becomes reality it's like oh wait i didn't want this this isn't what i bargained for you're not behaving the yeah. way that i imagined you would be yeah, yeah. Definitely a huge theme, and I'll quote Carter directly here when she was talking about the book. What she said was, any romance worth its salt is about the destruction of its own object by desire. I think that the big theme of this book is that desire is self-defeating because once you get what you desire, the desire is dead. It's, it's gone. When something becomes a reality, 
you don't have it anymore. So when he actually has Albertina, and, you know, this entire time, you know, he's been trying to get it on with her, and she's like, no, "Let's save it. Let's wait for later. Let's wait for later." That you know, Doctor Hoffman has made you know his ultimate goal to find out in the final chapter of the castle, which obviously is a very direct uh, Kafka reference. What he finds out is that there, that Doctor Hoffman has one hundred Keppels all copulating at the same time. He is literally manifested the moment of desire, the the commencement of desire. It kind of frozen in time is what's fueling these machines and getting Desideria with Albertina together is going to be like the ultimate, like that's what's going to make them perfect because he wants her so badly. But again, this fleeting need for her, that's obviously going to be transitory, you know, once they're actually there and he's not happy with her anymore. That's sort of what, you know, that that's sort of what destroys the machines ultimately is that you can't have desire all the time. Like you said, you know, you can't have things that you're imagining in your fantasy become reality because then they're not they're not fantasy anymore because then they are actual reality. And like Martin said, you get you get bored with them. You desire them less. It dies. So the whole you're daydreaming of of an ice cream. You get the ice cream. You can't daydream no more. There you go. It's gone, right? But yeah, the final chapter, and I I love his, you know, ultimate thought about Dr. Hoffman, which is he's disappointed because Dr. Hoffman is such like a boring scientist walking around describing these machines. He has no real passion. He's not an artist. He doesn't actually care about desire. He's just proud of himself for finding a way to manifest it. He's put off that the castle isn't a castle. It's a vacation home. He's like everything. (laughs) He's like, this is all... I was sold a like a completely false bill. Like this is this is horrible. Everything is topsy turvy. It's not how he thought it was, which is funny because Hoffman isn't really. I mean, what he's doing isn't great, obviously, but he's not as evil as what he had up in his mind either. Like what he was thinking, kind of projecting onto him. Once he meets him, he's like, oh, it's like pulling the curtain back to see the wizard. It's like, oh, well. Yeah, he's not really the maniacal evil genius who's who's assaulting reality. Like, who he kind of made me think of now are these these guys who are really into like the algorithmic AI images and stuff like that. Where it's, it's like, oh, I created a machine that made an art, and like they don't understand artwork at all, or you know, it's somebody who doesn't really understand desire and fantasy in in this deeper meaningful way it's uh, somebody who's coming at it from from a technical or from a scientific point of view and just doesn't it's superficial ha- yeah it, it's a superficial understanding of desire he's bored with dr hoffman so he kills him <laughs> he kills abertina uh and basically you know destroys the desire machines that kind of walks away from this feeling completely lost and void i should mention though before we got off of the uh centaur chapter uh they are oh no we're going back eviscerated. we have to go back <laughs> Because they're in danger of being eviscerated. And you mentioned the helicopters that, you know, kind of show up out of nowhere to save them and set fire to the jungle and everything like that. That's interesting because I was thinking throughout this book about Apocalypse Now, which wouldn't come out, obviously, for another seven years. Oh, that's a Um, good point. It's a very Heart of Darkness kind of story with uh, Hoffman as the... the sign to go and, yeah, kill this guy and then kind of having these adventures and then very specifically being saved by helicopters in this particular uh, kind of Vietnam kind of moment. It's interesting because I read an interview with Carter where she said um, it's from a 1980 interview. And she said, I just started reading Conrad for the first time. And I'm like, yeah. I wonder if she's reading it because she saw Apocalypse Now. And it's like, it makes a lot of sense. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
but yeah, so there's that kind of uh, interesting. So it kind of ends in an apocalypse now kind of way with him sort of walking away from all of this, you know, alone and kind of completely dead inside, determined to be, you know, to become an old man. And even though he'll be mythologized by, you know, his society because he saved the city, he's just going to be this old guy who falls asleep and dreams of Albertina for the rest of his life. It's funny because Carter clearly hates myth and mythology and, you know, has nothing but like critical things to say about them. And this is kind of the ultimate sort of point of that to say, you know, this guy is not really a hero, ladies and gentlemen. He's just kind of a guy who thought he was a hero, who thought that, you know, is infuriated when he finds out that like, wait, you didn't construct the moment we had in Africa, did you? Because that was my heroic moment. Like, don't take that away from me. Like, I thought that was a moment where I stood up and did something good in my life. Don't say that wasn't real. And Dr. Hoffman gives him like, eh, I don't know, maybe <laughs> kind of response. But that's, uh, that's where we end. And, uh, oh, man, I mean, obviously we kind of, you know, had to hurdle a few of the more uncomfortable moments of this book, but it is such a rich and amazing yeah, I mean, piece. Talking of about uh, killing Albertina and especially like those last few paragraphs where he's just kind of being a bitter old man they're they're really kind of a gut punch yeah uh, desiderio he's not somebody you can really you, you can't really empathize with him as much as as maybe some other characters in fiction but like you said I, it's purposeful and it's this peeling back of uh, somebody who's supposed to be a, a hero in these reality wars at the end it's it's somebody who just really is kind of broken by all this by this whole story and uh in the end, he's kind of gone back to dreaming, of, presumably about uh, Albertina. I don't think it says explicitly, but it's like at the end, that's, no, yeah, that's all absolutely. he has again is his dreams. So. That's what he's doing, for sure. Which is kind of funny that, again, it's very smart. The whole idea, the reason why he gets sent on this mis- mission is because he's not affected by the fantasies and all of this unreality. But... At the core of that, he is because whenever Albertina's Lafleur, he he doesn't immediately notice her. He's seeing her and everyone else. Whenever you know, at the end, after he's killed her, after his story's done, and he's an old man, he's still thinking about the fantasy of her. So, and it's it's not her who he met. It's the woman that was you know the glass shape in the shadows. So he he's the same as everybody else. He was able to go on this mission, but he did fall to desire which again i just i love kind of the it's like an ouroboros like it's just cyclical yeah Yeah, i mean he'd rather spend his life the rest of his life fantasizing and having this desire than just being put on a cot with this woman and you know copulating with her for the rest of his life to fuel these machines hoffman presents us like this is what you wanted right this is like you know you and her together this is the rest of your life you're with her and for him it's like it's it's a better ending for him to fantasize about that than actually be doing it mm-hmm. any other thoughts martin what did you think of this book on a whole takes back I, through the centaur chapter what were uh, some more of your... <laughs> my God. um i mean i i thought it was a fantastic book I, I i really enjoyed reading it actually as uncomfortable as some of it gets you know me i don't usually get that bashful but like especially when it gets into some of the more graphic uh sexually violent stuff i i i, I get pretty bashful talking about this story. you with that's all on purpose yeah. you know yeah. I mean, she wants you to be bashful she's like sure, sure. Make martin 
podcast. I, I know it's it's just it, it's uh, it's not easy to talk about. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, this ending, you know, really made me want to just pick it up and read it again. Which I did yeah, because you know, then you're like, how much of it was his fantasy? How much of it was his desires kind of be made materializing before him? And it's interesting to see all the hints leading up to it. The hints that Albertina and the doctor might be the same person all along, you yeah. know, that uh, maybe it's just two characters in this entire book, even though all the manifestations of them, these supporting characters are all so well de- depicted and like interesting. And the, again, the count, I just, I didn't get to mention that. Like, I love that he hates the count. That he's yeah. just like, he's a deviant. So of course he's like, this is, I hate this guy. I hate having to be with this guy, but like, why stay with him then? Why hang out with them? That's just like the count is so many people. I, I feel like it's so many people I know. <laughs> get, like like you said, the way it ends makes you want to go back and read it again. And the whole framing of Desiderio telling the story as an older man, it's like you almost get the sense that he could be reliving this story or retelling this story every every day. And that, you know, you can read it over and over again. And it's it's like a repetition. And I I don't know. Like you said, it's it's Oros Burroughs. It's uh, just yeah. it's something that can kind of loop back on itself and it, it's like you know talking to um you know like when you talk to some older people who have a certain regret or certain story that they kind of keep retelling you um it has a little bit of that feel to it which makes sense just the way it's framed and structured yeah i again i would recommend if you're going to read this one pair it with passion of new eve i love both books i think they're um, I do connect a little bit more with passion compared to Dr. Hoffman, but I have a lot of, I had a lot of fun revisiting this. I hadn't read it since I was, I was pretty young the last time I read it. So I think some of the parts that were shocking to me as a full grown adult were not as shocking when I was younger. And I mean, more of like, I probably at 12, I thought like, oh, a 15 year old, that's like a woman not obviously i know that so there's just i think certain things that hit differently now and i was like oh okay so it was kind of interesting in that aspect but i I, again it's so much of just we know what's going to happen from the get-go he tells us in the introduction that albertina's dead dr hoffman's dead i'm a hero i succeed on my journey so everything that i'm getting ready to tell you you know that the outcome of it already and it's not about that. It's about all the people we meet along the way and the things that we see. And it's, it just transports you. So I, I had a lot of fun revisiting it. I had a lot of fun revisiting Passion of New Eve. And I read quite a few Angela Carter books since whenever we originally started, we were going to do this episode. I had plenty of time to read a bunch of hers uh, books. So I've just kind of been in her world for like a couple of months, which has been nice. So again, she's one of my favorite authors. I I was thrilled to talk about her. I would recommend not waiting a decade in between <laughs> this with Passion of New Eve. Uh, I'm sure they pair even better together if you read them in a shorter span of time. She really does pull you in with her language and her just her writings. You kind of want to get lost there, stay there, marooned there, like on the coast of Africa. Let's uh, let's save Melanie to uh, for last for her dessert picks. So she can um, and and this. But Martin, what is your dessert pick for? Oh, my infernal desire. My uh, dessert pick. Um, this was on my mind because I I played it again sort of recently. But it's the video game Bloodborne, which um, the imagery is not really sexual, but it's got a lot of like reproductive 
imagery in it, birth imagery, stuff like that. And uh, it's also this story about a nightmare or maybe a dream invading reality. And it, it's set in this fantasy world where it seems like you're going to be um, killing Lon Chaney wolfmen, but then it turns into something a little bit more uh, metaphysical, I guess, and a little bit more Lovecraftian and you end up fighting all these weird gods or strange creatures and things. And uh, just some of the imagery, like there's there's a boss fight with something with like a horse head, kind of. <laughs> it's a little bit like a centaur. Um, and I don't know, just because I played that recently, I, I think like the images from that game were kind of in my mind when I was reading this, even though they're they're pretty different in a lot of ways. I just, I, again, talking about like, oh, right, it's in the 20th century. I think maybe that was part of the reason why I was just playing this game where people have like three corner hats and stuff. Uh, yeah, so if you if you want to follow that, if you want to follow up the book with something that might be fun to check out. All right, I said I was going to have my dessert be something that was clearly influenced by Infernal Machines. And it's funny, once you know Carter and you've read a lot of Carter, you can't not see her in everything, every kind of metaphysical, uh, feminist... Kind of dissertation on the journey, the hero's journey with like surreal and science fiction elements. I mentioned Labyrinth, you know, just kind of offhandedly, you know, with the acrobats, but really okay, like... I almost brought up Etoile uh, yeah. <laughs> again because of that swan description. I, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and that's also sort of fantasy and reality and stuff like that. But like, I don't know, maybe if you were doing a film version, you'd get like Jennifer Conley or I, I think Labyrinth is a really good... It's fitting. ...to compare it to, yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot like that, and uh, filmmakers like Alice Prios, who I know you're your fan, right, Martin of Prios? Yeah, yeah, and uh, I feel like there's a lot of her DNA in, in, in a lot of this kind of stuff. Uh, but the one I ultimately went with was Brazil, the Terry Gilliam film, because it seems like oh, sure. no way, like maybe Terry Gilliam knew her. Maybe he didn't. There's no way Tom Stoppard wasn't reading Angela Carter. There's no way Charles McGowan wasn't reading Angela Carter. And obviously, Brazil is a big mashup of lots of different influence, 1984 and Kafka, et cetera, like that. But I think the main hero's journey, having this desirable dream woman that he keeps thinking about as he's going along it and kind of ultimately ending up stuck in his fantasy world, trapped in this with this image, you know, of himself away in paradise with this woman. Uh, there is a lot of infernal uh, desire machines within brazil i think i think some of the best stuff i think you could probably trace back to carter and kind of how she takes again these literary tropes and kind of turns them into something that's totally new which gilliam you know who's you know got good movies and bad movies this is one of his good ones and you know it's definitely something that he's uh i think took from i'd say probably his best one yeah 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 i love time bandits but yeah brazil probably is his yeah i, I agree I think Time Bandits might be my favorite. I think Brazil might be his best. That's perfect. That's a, that's a good distinction. Yes. I used to rent that so much from the library, Time Bandits, as a kid. I love that. Yeah. I haven't really revisited it much since, but... I did during the pandemic. It's it's great. It was great. It's one of the few movies that I put on for my kids, forced them to watch that they actually enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> They're always so miserable. Oh, what are you putting on now? <laughs> They liked that one, though, even though they didn't know who Napoleon was at the time and things like that. Oh, enjoyed it. So. That's cool. Right, Daniels, what do you got? 
All right. So I also picked a video game and this is going to be kind of an odd pairing, but I, so whenever we were, uh, when I was reading this originally, it was back a few months and I was actually playing this game. And for whatever reason, in my mind, I was like, they're similar. This is what I immediately, I was like, this is going to be my dessert because they're so similar in just the weird realities that are created. So it's Paradise Killer. This was a game that came out um, from an indie studio. I think it's, they're a British studio. I think it's Kaiser Gameworks or Kazan Gameworks. I can't remember, but it's a really tight little, probably like 10 to 12 hour narrative story. And you're playing as an immortal syndicate member of this group of people who build these paradises that they can live in that are very surreal. And it's much to the detriment of a lot of people who are just trying to live their lives normally, as you find out, as you get into the story. But you are on an investigation. So you play as an investigator who is trying to solve an assassination that had already happened. And you go around collecting all of these uh, clues and the characters in this game are so good. It's like I said, it's mainly text-based, but there is some voiceover. I think the voiceover work is great. I kind of wish it does the persona thing where it'll have someone say like a catchphrase, but then there's dialogue written that it's not voiced over. I wish the whole thing was voiced, but it's still great. The thing about this game, it's the artwork is incredible and it, whenever I first started playing it, I didn't know right off the bat if it was going to be something I liked. Then all of a sudden, there's just this new demon that pops out. His name is Shinji, and he just makes fun of you and berates you the whole time. Amazing. And then the music in this game is, I can't, it's incredible. It's the uh, the artist, and you can look it up. It's on Spotify, um, Apple, or iTunes. So the original soundtrack for this is by Epic and that's E-P-O-C-H. Um, I think his real name is Brian Topping or Toppings. Incredible. It's like Tokyo City Jazz mixed with like 80s vaporwave. It's just like, it's so relaxing and nice. So when I say like, I was kind of going through a stressful time when I was playing this just personally, it just chilled me out. It was like the thing at the end of the day where I would put on and I would just be like, yep, we're going to go investigate a murder. And it was so much fun. So it's kind of an odd pairing, but it if you if you read this book and you play it, you'll kind of get it, kind of. But it's a big play it, But uh, I'm looking at some of the artwork right now and it looks fantastic. This it's looks so really much cool. Fun. I think I'm going to try this out. Yeah, and it's on like every system. It's on the Switch, it's on Xbox, PlayStation. You can get it on PC. So it's widely available. And again, it's, I think you can do a speed run and probably beat it in like 10 minutes. But, and I never look up guides and stuff, but I wanted to experience everything in this game. So I, I think at like hour 10, I was like, okay, we got a couple clues I haven't found. I'm just going to, because it's kind of, it's a very, the puzzles and things you have to do are a little bit obscure, but it's fantastic. So I highly recommend Paradise Killer. Excellent. This is the first time we've had two video game recommendations. Usually Martin is the only one who brings it up. So that's fantastic. I, I, don't, I think Infernal Design Machines could be a video game. You know, each oh, yeah. chapter is like a different level and, you know, you can have weird weird oh. enemies and weird interactions and like it could be a jrpg know. for sure like there's some of the set pieces like describing the like horse skeleton with the intestines inside could totally yeah. be like a you know i could picture that being rendered as like a video game set piece and the objective uh, of this level is to avoid the horny pirates yeah well, like, even yeah. like again like playing bloodborne like a lot of the things i thought were 
similar in a way like you know there's the doll you go to to level up and it was making me think of like the wax dolls and yeah infernal desire machines or you know there's characters who are blind and then there's you know you end up maybe fighting um somebody who's creating this dream and like I'm not sure there's really that concrete of a connection between the two, but it was sort of a like, oh yeah, this could have kind of a video game flavor to it. I was wondering Maybe. why I was like pulling teeth asking you about this, the chapter of the House of Anemone, and now I know why. You were like thinking, <laughs> how am I going to turn this into a great video game? <laughs> <laughs> Women in cages, walking furniture. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, again, like you, you can picture that as being like a very beautiful, like the, sorry to dive like back into the book, but just like, all the stuff that happens and you kind of rush through it and there's so many strange things that it could feel like a you know video game interactions and the book also like i don't know how much we hinted at it but like the pace is pretty wild like some of these chapters just blow right by actually um yeah some of the things that were described that's kind of how they're written like how they yeah. happen it's very quick succession it's just like you're and there's times where i don't know if you either of you had to go back and reread paragraphs to be like wait okay what I, I did but i thought it was just because i'm stupid <laughs> no, no no i this is it's, it's kind of a whirlwind yeah yeah where i would just so much would happen i'd be like i need to break that down so let's go back and we'll just reread that again yeah i think it took me probably double what it would take normally because i would go back and reread chapters and reread sections and just yeah yeah, and a, not a lot of dialogue, too, is another thing. When there is dialogue, it's usually in the form of like a monologue and a big philosophy, you know, monologue by one of the professors or the doctor or things like that. Very sparse dialogue. But while like she takes her time kind of going through that stuff, you're right. Something will happen suddenly in a paragraph. You're like, whoa, 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 wait. Yeah. <laughs> Avalanche, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what do you mean Japanese dwarves? Like, what? <laughs> Exactly. Well, Melanie, thank you so much for joining us. We always love having you on. Um, tell everybody where they can find you, what you're up to. Your your tweets are another thing that I always look forward to. Love your expertise in you know all kinds of things, all things fantasy, folklore, things like that. So, where can people find you on social media? I'm pretty much everywhere on social media at Plastic. If they World. want to share their alien erotic fiction or whatever they might. Want. Yeah, which I yeah I'll definitely. Um... I'm going to send you guys a bunch of weird things that I had saved from that. Do it. Absolutely. Phillips, because there's, I, I found a treasure trove of her. This was around the holidays where it was a bunch of holiday themed. So she wrote a, I'll, I'll send it to you. I don't have to get into it. You can find me pretty much anywhere at Plastic Werewolf on social media or Plastic Thing. And I am a co-host on Cinema Parlor, which it's, it's another film podcast. There's a plenty out there, but we, it's kind of more of just a non-pretentious, like casual conversation with friends. So it's not too serious, but that's, that's me. And what about the wishing well podcast? Because you okay. So the it wishing earlier. well, yeah. it's, I paused it because I, I bought new equipment and I was really, really busy, but I've recorded a couple of episodes. So it's coming and yeah, so it's, it's coming. It's just not, I think it's, it's one of those things that I'm, I, it's kind of just my own thing for me. It's going to be a fun thing and I want it to be as good as it can be, but not because I really care about it performing any kind of way. I just, I'm excited about it. So I've been nurturing a little, little bit more. It's just taking a long time, but it's coming. It's, it's almost ready to be released. 
Outstanding. Well, we all look forward to that. Thanks again so much, guys. Have a great night and pleasant dreams that hopefully don't manifest into reality. <laughs> Keep them dreams. Stay where they belong. <laughs> Stay in my head. <laughs>